Welcome back to another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge, Managing Editor of the CRS, and in this episode, I feature conversations with three scholars whose work appears in the August 2020 issue of the journal. There was a time when labor organizers used working class theatre and performance to foster the unity and identity of Canadian workers. Would this kind of display have the same impact today? Elizabeth Quinlan staged a play to find out, and she's here to tell us what happened. Also here is Amal Madibo, whose research puts the lie to the conventional understanding that immigrants to Canada are eventually integrated and included in the Canadian community. Indeed, she finds the opposite occurs among Black Francophone immigrants, a process that she calls reverse inclusion, and she'll explain why. And Elaine Coburn will provide us with a glimpse of the symposium on anti-Black racism in Canadian sociology. She and co-editor Wesley Critchlow pull together six essays by Black scholars who give us their appraisal of Canadian sociology and whether it can ever overcome the anti-Black racism at its roots. But first, can theatre foster working-class consciousness? Let's find out. I'm Liz Quinlan, faculty member in the Department of Sociology at the University of Saskatchewan. And I've worked on topics such as workplace harassment and labour history. And it is labour history that is the focus of Dr. Quinlan's article in the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. It's entitled Staging Labour Renewal, an Application of the Theory of Interaction Rituals. Here, she tells us what inspired her to pursue this research. Well, I had completed some primary research on women's contribution to the development of the Canadian labour movement, after which I commissioned a play based on the research. The play, entitled With Glowing Hearts, How Ordinary Women Worked Together to Change the World, and did, Uh, The play was performed in a number of places in both a one-act and full-length productions. And I thought the impact of the play on audience members needed to be studied. Wait a minute. Did Dr. Quinlan say she commissioned a play in response to her research on women in the Canadian labour movement? What's the connection? Well, it turns out that labour organising and performance are closely connected, or at least they used to be. Well, theatre and other art forms as well uh, have been a part of the labour movement at different points in its history. A particularly high point was during the Great Depression, when there was a vibrant cultural front opening up with new forms of artistic expression that captured the radical politics of the times. In the United States, the cultural activities were supported through the Workers' Theatre Project. In Canada, we didn't have the New Deal programming and funding, but the workers' movement was experimenting with new forms of theatre as an alternative to mainstream theatre that all too often extolled the virtues of the individual and individual will in overcoming oppression. And at the time, there was a large appetite for this kind of theatre 
because the thousands of unemployed people felt the bourgeois cultural forms didn't speak to what they were experiencing. So workers groups at the time saw theater as a weapon in the class struggle. So in the past, labor organizers used to stage plays to help foster working class consciousness and inspire action. But would they have the same effects today? Dr. Quinlan wanted to find out. Well, certainly the purpose of the play aligned nicely with the goals of the workers' theatre movement that I've just outlined in the sense that it aimed to both educate and inspire audiences. And so uh, the paper reports on the project in which I examined specifically the impact of the play on audiences and I did that by way of surveying the audience and then analyzing the results using Randall Collins' theory of interaction ritual. Collins' theory is built on Durkheim's concept of the ritual mechanism and uh, Goffman's application of the concept of ritual in natural settings. So in the paper, I argue that theatrical performances can conform to Collins' characteristics of a ritual. Audience members are physically assembled in the same place, so they affect each other by their bodily presence. And finally, in the list of Collins' characteristics, uh, participants can share a common emotional experience. And he outlines the key process in a ritual, which is the mutual entrainment of attention that produces a shared emotional or cognitive experience. So what did Dr. Quinlan discover? What did the surveys reveal? Well, first of all, the survey had a 55% response rate uh, over seven performances of the play. And that was quite surprising because the way the surveys were distributed was as the people were leaving the theatre, rushing to get to their next play at a different location. So there was a lot of chaos and pandemonium, not the usual environment for people to take the time to complete a survey. So I take the high response rate as an indication of people's emotional energy stirred by the play. And this was something I was looking for as an outcome, because according to Collins, if a ritual is successful, it produces a feeling of emotional energy. And that feeling is confidence, strength, enthusiasm and initiative to take subsequent action. And they also made extensive use of the other comments section that I left open to propose collective actions. So, for instance, one respondent urged, we need to make Canadian companies, particularly mining companies, working abroad in third world countries accountable because of their recurrent human rights violations, end of quote. And another counseled women to reclaim their pivotal role in historical struggles for justice. So these are some of the findings that, to me, indicate why the play has been so successful, because it does trigger a high degree of emotional energy and encouragement to take initiative to propose collective actions following. Some compelling outcomes.
What are the key takeaways from Dr. Quinlan's research? Well, I think there's a great deal to be mined uh, from Colin's theory of interaction rituals, uh, because I, I think that they certain it certainly doesn't just apply to theatrical events. Um, but I also think that the findings speak directly to labor activists who might wish to use the dramatic arts as a means of fostering solidarity, because the findings show that the resources would be well spent on theatrical productions that follow in the tradition of the workers' theatre movement. So I think the, the implications uh, are far-reaching, both in terms of further scholarship, but also to be applied by the labour movement. Read Dr. Quinlan's entire article, Staging Labour Renewal, an Application of the Theory of Interaction Rituals. You can find it in the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Next on Crystal Radio, we welcome Dr. Amal Madibou of the University of Ottawa. So my uh, research area is social justice, which uh, I do through my engagement with the sociology of immigration and the sociology of race and ethnicity. Dr. Madibou explores the experiences of Black Francophone immigrants in Alberta in her article, Reverse Inclusion, Black Francophones in the Interface Between Linguicism and Anti-Black Racism. Here, she explains what drew her to this research. Uh, we know that, you know, in general, Black Canadians are understudied, and uh, Black Francophones are even more overlooked. Not only do uh, they um, suffer multiple, multi-layer discrimination uh, in the form of anti-Black racism and intersection, with linguistic discrimination. Uh, they engage in uplifting activism that, again, we need to draw on to enhance justice. Thus, my research question is twofold. One is how do race, language, and immigration status shape Black Francophones' lives in Canada? And the second one, is uh, what anti-racist lessons we can draw from these issues. Dr. Maribo's commitment to social justice extended to her choice of research design. In general, you know, we do not associate uh, blacks with long issues. You think that is long, you know, like long presence in Canada that, uh, you know, leads to having a future in Canada. I wanted to reverse that by actually doing uh, a long-term study about uh, Black Francophones with the wonderful research assistance. With regard to my, my data and methods, we conducted the study in two phases. Uh, one uh, during the economic boom in Alberta and the other uh, during the economic downturn in Alberta. And the first was between was conducted between 2008 and 2011, and the second in 2016. So what did Dr. Madibo learn about the long-term experiences of Black Francophone immigrants in Alberta? Well, a lot of things. 
But certainly one of the most striking is that their lives in Canada unfolded in ways contrary to what we might expect. Thinking about uh, immigration and integration as a process that uh, encompasses uh, three stages, settlement, adaptation, and inclusion uh, that are um, successive, in which uh, case one uh, moves smoothly and successfully from a stage or a phase to another, uh, is not just a hypothesis. It is a fact for many, but uh, black, uh, for black francophone, it is the opposite. You know. They achieve some success, but the success does not uh, lead to another one additional uh, success or inclusion. Um, it is uh, the opposite. Dr. Maribo calls this process reverse inclusion. I use this term, reverse uh, inclusion, for a number of reasons. A, I wanted to keep the term inclusion in the title, uh, because um, for black francophones, inclusion is both a goal and a right. Uh, I use the term reverse both as a verb and an adjective uh, to speak to the complexity of inclusion when it comes to black uh, francophones, their inclusion uh, in the uh, in the end uh, it fades away. Instead of going forward, black francophones actually move backward. I also use the, this term of reverse inclusion to juxtapose the inclusion of white francophones with the inclusion of black francophones. In which case, one is the reverse of the other. The inclusion of uh, white francophones is inclusive, it is progressive, it increases as time goes by. The inclusion of black francophones is A, the reverse of the inclusion of white francophones, and B, the reverse in, in the sense that for whites, again, it is progressive, for blacks, it is uh, regressive. And that is due, again, to the complexity of um, anti-black racism in this case and its intersection with racialized linguicism. Contributing to their experience of reverse inclusion, Dr. Maribo's research subjects found their skills undervalued and their civic participation discounted. In the issue of the devaluation of credentials of qualified immigrants, devaluation of their credentials, occurs in multiple and multi-layered ways. If they have English credentials, their English credentials are not valued. If they have French credentials, their French credentials are not recognized in predominantly Anglophone Canada, nor in Francophone Canada, including in, uh, uh, in Quebec. The other issue is in terms of uh, agency and resilience of black francophones. They are engaged in an uplifting um, activism. Uh, in the article, I highlight uh, three um, examples of their activism, community building, capacity building, and political uh, activism. Yet um, racism, anti-black racism persists. And it's not because the community or the black francophones are not assuming their responsibility, because they are. Racism persists because the system, the establishment, 
does not assume its responsibility to challenge structural racism and redress it. The experiences of the Black Francophone immigrants in Dr. Madibo's study drive home the point that it's high time we all act to redress the anti-Black racism in Canadian cultures and institutions. The struggle against anti-Black racism has a great momentum right now. But it is not just a moment that will fade out. It is here to stay. And I would like the reader to think about their responsibility vis-a-vis anti-Black racism. Identify how you will fight it. So let's uh, be honest and um, be committed and honor our commitment uh, to justice, acknowledge our oppression, and uh, commit to systemic change. Read the entire article, Reverse Inclusion, Black Francophones in the Interface Between Linguicism and Anti-Black Racism by Dr. Amal Madibo in the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. This is not a time to commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology. And it's time to give you a sneak peek at what appears in the Committing Sociology section of the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. This month, we feature a symposium on challenging anti-Black racisms and sociology for Black liberation. The editors of the symposium are Wesley Critchlow and my next guest. Um, My name is Elaine Coburn. I am Associate Professor in Sociology at York University in Toronto, Canada, where I'm also the Director uh, for the Centre for Feminist Research. Uh, I would also like to say that I'm speaking today on behalf of my colleague, Professor Wesley Krishlaw, who's a professor and associate dean of equity, diversity and inclusion at Ontario Tech University, among other roles. And if uh, Wesley isn't here today, that's because like many other black scholars, um, generally and maybe in this particular moment, uh, are feeling a lot of fatigue and being over solicited. And so Wesley asked me to read the following, which is a quote from Audre Lorde about the frustrations of that role sometimes. People of color are expected to educate white people to our humanity. Women are expected to educate men. Lesbians and gay men are expected to educate the heterosexual world. The oppressors maintain their position and evade their own responsibilities for their own actions. So if I'm speaking today as a white scholar uh, and in the specific context and moment of the collaboration with Wesley and not to generalize to other circumstances, we'd agree that I would speak as a way of assuming my responsibilities, collegial, scholarly, and human, to move beyond what's a sometimes comfortable white ignorance. So if I'm talking here today, that's the reason. Dr. Coburn explains the origins of the symposium. Um, well, as a, as a textual project, it was actually linked to a collaboration we had to create a panel uh, featuring Black scholarship for Congress. Um, And since we were organizing for that event, and because I'm a member of the Canadian Review of Sociology editorial board, it made sense uh, to both of us to complement the panel with a written symposium that would feature diverse Black scholarly voices and their insights into sociological complicity with anti-Black racisms. Right now, we're in a moment of reckoning around Black Lives Matter, and so the symposium looks especially timely. But I think uh, both Wesley and I would agree that 
given the centuries old persistence of anti-black racisms, including in the academy, unfortunately, this intervention would be timely at almost any moment up into including the present and not just in sociology, but in, you know, many other social science disciplines as well. In pulling together the symposium, Dr. Coburn and Dr. Critchlow wanted to ensure that a variety of voices and perspectives were represented. Um, Yes, so there are six scholars, and um, these include African migrant scholars, Caribbean-born diasporic intellectuals, it includes Anglophones and Francophones, women and men, and so on. So they're, they're scholars with a range of concerns as the focus of the research, but all of them in one way or another write about African and Black experiences in Canada and, and around the world. Here, Dr. Coburn provides an overview of the pieces that comprise the symposium. And the symposium begins with um, Professor Gertrude Mienda, who is my colleague at York University and the director of the Tubman Institute. Her work and her contribution speaks about the underappreciation of the theoretical contributions of African feminists like Awatiem and the ways that white feminists often dominate in transnational collaborations. She concludes on a note of optimism, arguing that sociology may now be slowly changing, however, and she hopes for a sociology that will begin to uh, recognize meaningfully African feminist contributions to the social sciences. Professor Ronaldo Walcott from the University of Toronto has a contribution in which he argues that sociology fails uh, because sociologists do not critically question the securitization and the criminalization of Black faculty, staff, and students on university campuses. And he concludes that if for Black lives to flourish, sociology, which has so far been complicit in the reproduction of white supremacy, must die. So not a very optimistic vision of the future of sociology and its compatibility with Black liberation. In his intervention, Professor Carl James from York University points to the way that Black scholarly expertise is dismissed as politicized, especially when critiquing anti-Black racisms, while white experts like myself are seen as more distant from and hence more objective about race inequities. He challenges this racialized reproduction of white intellectual authority, and he calls on sociology to do a better job of interrogating its own complicity in race inequities. Professor Erica Lawson from the University of Western Ontario points to the ways that a supposedly colorblind university now seeks to engage in equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives. And she argues that this creates an uncomfortable double consciousness in Black faculty who are expected to participate in such initiatives. At the same time, she says, EDI initiatives rarely address the specificities of anti-Black racisms. And when a Black scholar participates in one of these sessions and raises these concerns, they are often seen as aggressive or ungrateful to a university that's trying to change. She concludes with a question rather than an answer, asking who EDI initiatives really serve. Uh, Professor Philomena Okike Iherajika from the University of Alberta writes about the ways that the African migrant scholar is a stranger in her own university workplace, too often without mentors, exposed and isolated in meanings, and vulnerable to hostile student assessments related to dress, accent, but not scholarly expertise. Professor Okike Iherjirika calls, too, for some uncomfortable conversations among African and Black scholars, noting that some well-known Black academics take space but fail to make space for, you know, more junior academics and their students. 
And finally, the last word goes to Amal Madibou, who is currently a visiting scholar at the University of Ottawa and who writes about the African Francophone immigrant experience in Canada. She points to the marginalization of African Francophone migrants in Canadian society and in the university. And she calls for sociology and for the academy to become, quote, a more human, diversified space with respect to who is in our classrooms and with respect to what we teach. In all, it's a compelling collection of essays from which readers can draw insight and inspiration. I think we like Black sociologists, especially the younger generation, to see themselves in the discipline, to see the excellence of diverse Black sociologists and feel that there's a meaningful place for them in sociology and and more generally in in the academy. I, I think for white sociologists like myself, Uh, The hope is that this is an entry point into important, difficult, and sometimes fraught discussions um, for those who are not already engaged in this work. And uh, for all scholars, we hope that this section is an invitation to critically engage with a Black and African scholarship, scholarly literature uh, in and from Canada that's vast and rich and diverse and and can make a positive difference to the insights in the discipline if we engage with it. Find the Symposium, Challenging Anti-Black Racisms and Sociology for Black Liberation, in the Committing Sociology section of the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. And we've reached the end of another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Keep your ears open for upcoming programs featuring scholars whose work appears in the November 2020 issue of the journal. I'm Karen Stanbridge.